Welcome to the Recovery Unplugged podcast. My name is Pastor Noah Lang. I'm the chaplain of nighttime operations here at the Colony of Mercy. And our topic today is reconciliation. I recently turned 40. I'm a proud child of the 80s. And one of my most iconic and enduring memories of growing up in the 1980s is President Ronald Reagan's speech at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin. For those of you too young to remember that speech, President Reagan addressed Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev and his professed desire for peace with the West and challenged Gorbachev that if he truly desired peace, the only option was to come to Berlin, open the Brandenburg Gate and tear down the Berlin Wall. President Reagan was insistent that there could be no true peace without reconciliation. There could be no reconciliation while there was a literal wall dividing East Germans from West Germans. Peace, reconciliation, and the tearing down of walls were intricately tied together in this speech. And they are also intricately tied together in Paul's description of what it means to be redeemed in Ephesians chapter 2. Having declared that we are saved by grace through faith, Paul then wrote that we are God's workmanship created for good works that he planned in advance that we should walk in them. And then encouraged us to remember our separation from both God and his people before we were brought near by the blood of Christ. And in the passage we're going to look at today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, Paul elaborates on what it means to be brought near. And in doing so, he mentions three aspects of reconciliation. The first of those is that Christ's blood has reconciled us to each other. In verses 14 and 15 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. After having asserted in verse 13 that Gentile believers have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, Paul now asserts in verse 14 that Jesus is our peace. Where there was once hostility, there is now peace, but this peace is not an abstract concept, but a person, Jesus Christ. This idea of peace is the equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom, the idea of completeness, wholeness, well-being, satisfaction, of being in harmony with God, other people, and nature. As such, the peace of which Paul speaks is includes two distinct parts. First, it is the ending of hostilities. And secondly, it is the acceptance in relationship. And it includes both parts. When our human wars end with the peace treaty and terms are set out for the ending of the armed conflict, the ending of the fighting doesn't mean that hostile feelings and behaviors cease as well. There is often suspicion and mistrust in the aftermath. And countries at war don't go from war to friendship just because a peace treaty has been signed. But what Paul's saying is that's exactly what happens among those people whom Christ has redeemed. Those people whom he has brought near by his blood. Because he is our peace, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility and made both groups one. And in the temple, of course, there would have been a literal wall dividing the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews. 
Uh, but since that wall was still standing when Paul wrote Ephesians, he's most likely not speaking about the physical wall. But rather what he's saying is that the hostility between Jew and Gentile was so great that it was as though there was a wall dividing the two groups from having any meaningful relationship with each other. To go back to the Berlin Wall for a moment, the figurative distance between Jew and Gentile and between other races of people, regardless of their literal proximity, was so great that it was like East Berliners and West Berliners who may have lived in the same city, but were cut off from each other by a concrete wall that ran between them, keeping them from seeing, speaking to, or having any relationship with one another. But Christ, as our peace, has torn down the wall. More than that, he has not only ended the hostility, but forged the two groups into one. And what Paul says that this is not some lofty ideal or future reality, but rather a present, a present reality based on a past event. The forging of one man from the many is not something that God is doing but something that God has done. It's something he has already accomplished 2,000 years ago through Christ's finished work on the cross. Paul goes on to say that in his flesh, Jesus made no effect to the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. The law was uh, signified that division that existed between Jew and Gentile. Uh, the law was what mediated the Jews' relationship with God and they looked down on the Gentiles because they did not have that mediator. And what Paul says Jesus accomplished in his flesh was to make the whole point moot. In his life he perfectly fulfilled the law and in his death he made it of no effect. The law is no longer the mediator between God and man. Christ is. Man no longer has to strive to keep the Mosaic law because Christ did. The law is no longer binding for people because Christ has nullified it. And through this nullification of the law's effect, Christ has created in himself one man from the two. Both Jews and Gentiles are now under the same system. They are both saved by grace through faith. Righteousness comes for both by faith, not from works of the law. And the result is peace. To the extent that there is no longer two men, two peoples, but one man. And in the succeeding verses in Ephesians 2, Paul will go on to, to describe us as being a kingdom, a family, and a temple. But here he simply refers to us as one man. And that word man is new creation language. This new man is something better than the composite of his parts. Just as the Christian is new creation is something better and more complete, so this new man, this new people, this church is better, more complete than the sum of its parts. The early church father, John Chrysostom, used the analogy of God taking a statue of silver and a statue of lead, putting them into a forge and pulling out a statue of gold. And this idea has important ramifications that we cannot afford to miss as we read through Ephesians. Because what Paul is insisting is that Christ's blood was shed not only to redeem us, but also to reconcile us to each other. To make one man, one body, one group, one nation out of the many. 
And again, this is not a future reality, but a present one based on the past action of Christ. This is not God's plan B, but his original design. And so what this means for us is the same thing it meant for Jews and Gentiles 2,000 years ago. Our reconciliation to each other means that we must not define ourselves by any physical or earthly characteristics, but only by the blood of Christ. It means that my whiteness, my American citizenship, my marital status, my sexuality, my gender, my socioeconomic status, my addiction or drug of choice, or any other way that I define myself, all must be laid down at the foot of the cross. The ancient hostility between Jew and Gentile were abolished by the cross, and the church is to reflect that. And all other hostilities must meet the same fate. The hostility between black and white is abolished. And this does not mean that blacks as the minority culture must submit to the majority white culture, but that black and white Christians must both submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, even though this will entail a painful reconfiguring of what it means to be white or what it means to be black. A number of years ago, I was pastoring a local church and I took part in a prayer meeting of local religious leaders to pray for revival and it was held in one of the oldest churches in New Jersey. And part of that service was spent praying in the balcony of the church where the slaves would have been forced to sit back in the 16 and 1700s while their white masters sat in the seats of privilege as the pastor perhaps preached a sermon on slaves obeying their masters. And as I stood in that balcony praying with these religious leaders of all different ethnicities and races, it struck me what a disgrace that situation was in the, 15, in the 16 and 1700s to the blood of Jesus Christ, in whom there is no slave or free. White and black Christians segregating into white and black churches on a Sunday morning, the most segregated hour in America, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said unable or unwilling to worship together as brothers and sisters in Christ is a disgrace to the blood of Christ. The gospel, scripture tells us, is good news, but a gospel that leaves us in our hostility, separated from others for whom Christ died and who have been redeemed by his blood, is not good news. Paul spends the first chapter and a half of Ephesians speaking of our redemption, but then the second chapter and a half, from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 3, speaking of our reconciliation. And his point is that the blood that was strong enough to redeem us is also strong enough to reconcile us. The blood of Christ means that a Christian who voted for Donald Trump and a Christian who voted for Joe Biden a Christian who flies a blue and black flag in support of the police, and a Christian who supports defunding the police, an Arab Christian and a Jewish Christian, a white Christian and a Christian of color, must not look upon each other with hostility and suspicion, nor simply tolerate each other, but rather embrace one another as members of the same body and work toward a unity that reflects the peace and reconciliation that are already ours in Christ. In his commentary on the book of Ephesians, Brian Chappell provides the following hierarchy that defines how we feel about people who are different than us. At the lowest level, he says we have reason to hate them because of their race. 
Uh, we hate them simply because they are different. Secondly, perhaps we, we move on to tolerating them if they stay in their place. We'll tolerate the differences as long as they don't encringe on our area and make us uncomfortable. Thirdly, we will accept them if they become like us. Uh, and so we move from toleration to acceptance as long as they start to conform to our culture and our standards. Fourthly, we will accept them despite our differences. And so we recognize the differences and don't really love them, but we decide to accept them other, anyway. Fifthly, we, we will love them because God wants us to help them and we see them as people uh, less than us in some way that God is calling us to reach out. And so we, we love them, but it is a very uh, patronizing kind of love. And then finally, sixthly, we will love them because we need them to help us understand God. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot more of number, numbers one and two in churches than we like to admit, where we either hate people because they're different or we tolerate them as long as they don't make us uncomfortable. And I think numbers three to five are where most of us probably live on a daily basis. But only number six truly reflects biblical reconciliation, where we love people who are different than us because we need them to help us understand God. And since this is ultimately a recovery podcast, I do want to pause for a moment and speak directly to issues of recovery. For those of you who are in recovery currently, I encourage you to reject the lie that says only people in recovery can help you. Because if you define yourself only by your addiction and you dismiss the contributions of anyone who has never been addicted, you dismiss a large part of the body of Christ who God will use in your life and in your recovery. And secondly, for those of you who are either not in recovery or have progressed far enough in your recovery that you are now the one supporting others in the early stages of theirs, uh, those of you who with, with loved ones who are in addiction or in recovery, uh, even we need to be in number six. Because when it comes to certain groups, like, like addicts, like the poor, the sick, widows, orphans, we in the church, again, can live in number five, where we love them because God wants us to help them. And we love them merely, only because God wants us to help them. But brothers and sisters, even with addiction, we need to move on to number six and learn to love people because we need them to help us understand God. And when we stop at number five, seeing addicts only as those we are called to help, as projects, as mere objects of our charity, instead of moving on to number six, we will never really understand the God who leaves the 99 for the one, who pursues us even when we insist on making our bed in shale, and whose faithfulness is greater even than our faithlessness. And it's number six that Paul encourages Philemon to adopt when writing to him about his escaped slave Onesimus, who had found Paul and been converted by him. And Philemon, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, 
both in the flesh and in the Lord. Those who say that the New Testament supports slavery are not familiar with the book of Philemon, where Paul tells Onesimus, essentially, how can you insist on owning someone who is your brother in Christ? A person cannot be both your brother and your slave. Christ has torn down our artificial walls of hostility in order to make us one. And so may we never attempt to re-erect those walls, divide ourselves on the basis of race, nationality, age, socioeconomic status, type of sin, or any other defining feature our world comes up with. Brian Chappell goes on to say in his commentary, people overjoyed with the wonders of their salvation, delight to see the power of the gospel overcoming the barriers of race, because it reminds them of the power of Christ to unite all of us to him. And so Christ's blood has reconciled us to each other, but secondly, Christ's blood has reconciled us to God. Paul goes on in verses 16 and 17 to say, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. Jesus did this, making both groups into one, so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. And Christ accomplishes our reconciliation to each other on the cross. And hostility existed not only, of course, between Jews and Gentiles, but between man and God. And Christ's blood provided for peace and reconciliation in that relationship as well. It is the cross and only the cross that provides peace with God. Uh, the stereotypical dividing lines among the church today tends to be that conservative Christians stop at redemption and never continue on to reconciliation. And progressive Christians tend to skip over redemption and jump right to reconciliation. And But what Ephesians 2 tells us is that redemption without reconciliation is incomplete. But reconciliation without redemption is impossible. You cannot be reconciled in any meaningful sense to other people unless you've been reconciled to God. The vertical relationship must be addressed first, which then enables the horizontal relationships to be dealt with. But notice still that the horizontal relationships are not unimportant. These verses remind us that God is not just saving individual persons, he's saving a people. In 1 Peter 2.9, he calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Revelation 1, 5, and 6 says that God has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. And verse 17 of Ephesians 2, again, says, He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. According to the Gospels, Jesus never did that in his earthly ministry. Prior to the crucifixion, Jesus was focused almost exclusively on Jews, while after the resurrection, he was focused on preparing the disciples to take the gospel to the nations. And so it appears as though what Paul is saying is that Jesus, by the Spirit, through the church, has proclaimed the good news of peace to those both far and near. The church is his vehicle of proclamation, and our existence should match our message. 
It is reconciled people, reconciled both to God and to each other, who are called, commissioned, and gifted to proclaim the message of reconciliation. But if we're dividing over the same lines as the world, with white churches over here and black churches over there, Republican-leaning churches over here and Democratic-leaning churches over there, rich churches and poor churches, hymn singing traditional services and praise song singing contemporary services, uh, youth services and services for seniors. If we're dividing along all the same lines as the world, then why would the world think that what we have to offer is anything different than what they already have? And finally, Christ's blood reconciled us to our design. Verse 18 says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. A few years ago, I read the story of a Christian family who already had kids of their own, uh, a white uh, Christian family, and then they went and adopted a whole bunch of kids, all siblings, uh, from Africa. And so their family picture is, I think, kind of what Paul has in mind here. Their family picture pictures the parents and both white and black children, all equal, all sitting on their parents' laps, all surrounding each other. Because what Paul is saying is that through Christ, God is the father of all those who have been redeemed and reconciled. And having been reconciled, we all have free access by the Spirit to him. There is no more estranged children, no more sibling rivalry. That other Christian that you don't like because they look different than you, vote different than you, think different than you. If God is their father through Christ, they have the same free access to the father that you have. Both Jew and Gentile, black and white, slave and free, natural born and naturalized citizens, rich and poor, sit on the lap of their father, telling him their troubles, asking for help, receiving gifts and enjoying him together. And this is what we were originally made for. The great Martin Lloyd-Jones, a London preacher from last century, noted that for two people to be reconciled, they have to have first been consiled. In other words, two total strangers cannot go to a marriage counselor seeking to be reconciled. There was no marriage, no relationship there to begin with. But a married couple seeking reconciliation are seeking to go back to a time when their relationship was whole and complete. And that's what reconciliation means for us as well. It's a restoration of peace, of completeness, of wholeness, of shalom. It's a restoration of Eden. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were at peace with each other and with God. God walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day and there was no interpersonal strife. And so to be reconciled is to return to that state. And the church is to be an as yet imperfect return to Adam and Eve walking with, garden, with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And one day it will be a perfect return. Romans 5, Paul says that we have been justified, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by grace into this, by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Ephesians 3.12, he goes on to say, In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. 
Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And notice that all these verses, including Ephesians 2 that we've been looking at, all use the first person plural. And here in America, we tend to read these verses and subtly replace we with I. I have access. I can approach the throne of grace with boldness. But Paul does not switch the first person singular or second person singular or second person plural. Rather, he emphasizes that we have access. In fact, this is even more striking since in the preceding verses he had been speaking to you Gentiles and you Jews. But now, having been reconciled, it's no longer I, no longer you, but we. And as we approach the throne of grace in prayer here and now, May we not take our eye off of what it will look like when we literally approach the throne of grace together. As described in Revelation 7, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. What Paul insists is that God has redeemed for himself a people of his own possession, not individual persons, but a people, and reconciled us both to himself and to each other through the cross of Jesus Christ. May our lives individually, may our churches corporately, not only proclaim this message of peace to those who are far and to those who are near, making disciples of all nations, but also embody this message of reconciliation, growing into one body of Jesus Christ and celebrating our unity in diversity. We need one another to understand God. And in our diversity, we see God's varying gifts to each other to become the body of Christ, to bring his message of reconciliation to the world.